IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week. We review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we're going to be looking back at 2020 with the first installment of our award show, The IndieCasties. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Before we get into the indie casties, I want to bring in just a little bit of wisdom. Like, I do have a real job, like a real-life job, and I want to be able to share some in-real-life wisdom that I've gained at that job. So there's a phrase that you'll hear often when um, you're working with people in any form of recovery, which is um, pause when agitated. Uh, it's, you know, like everything else in this realm, it's, it's a cliche, but it's true. And what it reminds people is to give themselves a little space between the agitating thought or impulse over which they have no control, uh, and the action, the problematic behavior over which they do have control. It's why you'll see sometimes people have like pause tattoos on their wrists, Um, You know, that works for people, whether they're trying to recover from drug or alcohol addiction or shopping or eating disorders or, and I also find that it, (laughs) this is very heavy, Ian, this is a very heavy introduction. Like, I'm curious where you're going with this. It also works if like your problematic behaviors are not any of the things I mentioned, but uh, being on Twitter. And so... I am glad that we have this episode today because when the first thing you'll wake up to after weeks of criticism about like hegemony and pop music and how all the year-end lists are the same and stand culture, when the first thing you wake up to is the announcement of a new Taylor Swift record, um, these are the times which I have to remind myself to pause when agitated and to not say or do anything on Twitter that may, I don't know, cause my car to end up on cinder blocks or angry calls to come into my work. So I get to, I get, I get to bring... But, but by saying that you mm. need to pause, but by saying you need to pause, you are in effect saying volumes, I feel like. I, I, because it's pretty clear <laughs> that you've been triggered... By the news of a new Taylor Swift record, I assume that you're more triggered by anticipating the discourse than the actual. Oh record, no, the, right? the, the, I have absolutely no no problem with the, uh, and we'll get into this a little bit when, during one of our categories. But it's not, it's ne- it's never just the album; it's always the discourse. And in, I mean, yeah, it, it in in a weird way, it's like, oh, cool, we have something to talk about during a time where the year end lists all came out, and now, like, what the heck are we supposed to do until like, you know, mid January where we start getting new music in earnest? But, um, yeah, it's just like, man, I, I, people are bored, and this is like, this is just sucking up all the oxygen. So, well, um, you know, and I. All, for, I'll say, like, for me, like, I was on vacation when Folklore dropped, so I didn't write about that record. It's the first Taylor Swift record I didn't review, I think, since Speak Now. Like, I've somehow written about all of her records, for the most part. Um, So I think I'm reviewing this new one, uh, which is called Evermore. So I'm excited, I have to say, to re-enter the Taylor Swift discourse, because (laughs) I was actually in the woods at a cabin when Folklore dropped. I was having my own Taylor Swift experience 
communing with nature and uh you know i think i was probably wearing a cardigan sweater or uh, when uh, i saw the news of that album so um mm. i feel like i've been refreshed it's like i had a sabbatical <laughs> from the taylor swift wars or they're not even a war anymore i mean i, th- I feel like it's all in agreement the one thing with taylor swift discourse mm. that annoys me sometimes is when people still suggest that she's underrated or that she doesn't get yeah. respect from critics because i feel like at this point she is the most universally like liked person i don't know if this has been mentioned before but like did you know that 1989 was not reviewed by pitchfork but ryan <laughs> adams was i don't know if anyone's brought right. this up but it's a real delicious new angle to this discourse Yes, yes. Yeah, it w- and that was back when Pitchfork might be the only major publication that wouldn't review a pop record, which I think at the time was perceived as this, like, you know, indie hipster uh, superior attitude toward pop. Now I find that, I feel like most people, even like pop fans, would find that kind of refreshing if there was like a major pub <laughs> that just didn't review pop records. Not out of disrespect yeah. to pop records, but just to say, like, hey, like, Everyone else is doing this. We're just going to cover something different. Um, but we don't live in that world. Indie ca- IndieCast can't even say that they're doing it because, like, look look at us right now. We're, I know. We're ta- <laughs> your, yeah, your pause monologue has just totally gone by the wayside because I sucked us into a Taylor Swift conversation. Maybe we'll talk more oh, about Taylor the, Swift next week yeah. once we hear the record. But uh, Yeah, also, by the way, I just got an email that a new Greta Van Fleet video just dropped so uh yeah you might we, we might just i don't know either this is going to be the best day on in twitter history or the worst so there's really That's, no there's really no middle ground i gotta say i'm excited to write about the next greta van fleet record oh they're, i am stoked i am they're a fun stoked, band to write man. about and they played i think they were on colbert this week oh i thought their song was okay i didn't mind the song i gotta say <laughs> there's elements of their of that band that i enjoy I think the vocals are easily the most irritating part of that band, but yeah, I don't know. As as a lover of big dumb rock, Greta Van Fleet, I, I yeah, they push it, some it of my does buttons. not get much bigger. Doesn't get much bigger or dumber than that in two thousand. Absolutely, that, I think it's like what Darren that Darren, that uh, incredible Darren Rovell tweet. I feel bad for our I feel bad for our country, but it's incredible content, you know. I'm holding out hope that Greta Van Fleet, like on their third record, makes their tiny music songs from the Vatican <laughs> gift shop. I, yes. I feel like they could do that, especially if they got yes. hooked up with like the right producer. I'm trying to think of like who would be uh, a good producer for Greta Van Mark Fleet. Mark Ronson or something like that. Like just someone who like has the veneer of cred, but also like is a songwriter, maybe. Or I maybe if they just went totally old school, like when the darkness hired. Mutt Lang or like Roy Thomas Baker. I think like the darkness hired Roy Thomas Baker. They did, yes. So yeah, Greta Van Fleet. (laughs) If they hired Mutt Lang or um, Roy Thomas Baker, I think that could be a pretty cool record. Just, just, just possibly go all the way. You can't, you can't half-ass this stuff. Or maybe Brendan O'Brien. Get Brendan O'Brien in there. Maybe he could. uh, That's too, too, too credible. Yeah, maybe. Like we. Yeah, we need like we need someone like uh, you know, or like uh, Jim Steinman. Uh, Jim Steinman. Yes, like, yeah, uh, Jim Ste- like someone who, someone's like super hair metal. Like that just could... get like just get out of this Led Zeppelin thing. Just go full like winger. Go full on or like Bob Rock. Uh, get Bob Rock. in Yeah, there? yeah. Get Bob Rock in there. It could be good. There we go. Um, we we we've solved the Greta Van Fleet problem. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, okay, before we get into the Indie Casties part of the episode, and by the way, Indie Casties, this is something that we're doing for the first time, obviously, because this is still a relatively new podcast, but it's just going to be us looking back at 2020. We're going to be doing this this week and next week. Getting beyond the sort of standard, like, what are the best songs of the year? What are the best albums of the year? We came up with, I think, more creative categories, some of them positive, some of them negative. I think it's kind of fun to talk about negative stuff. I, I, I feel like that's discouraged now. People don't really do, like, worst songs list anymore, but I think it's kind of yeah. fun. And it's all in good fun. We're just two idiots on a podcast. It doesn't really matter what we say anyway. But <laughs> you know, So Greta Van Fleet, if you're listening... I do legitimately yeah. like you on some level. We're, even if we we're pulling for you, man. Yeah, we are. We're we pulling like big for Dumb Rock on here. Uh, I but, really hope you get. I really hope you get like at least a two next time on your pitfall <laughs> review. You know, yeah, exactly. I mean, come on. We don't need to take shots <laughs> at Greta Van Fleet. They're they're doing what they're doing. You know, they're in their lane. It's not a very reputable lane. Even if they executed that formula perfectly, they still wouldn't get a good score from Pitchfork because. I don't think Pitchfork would appreciate that kind of band, but I don't know. Anyway, that's for yeah. another day, that conversation. Um, let's do. Let's go to our mailbag first before we yes. get to the indie casties. Uh, this is a question from Matt, one of our listeners. Thank you, Matt, for writing in. He says, hey, Steve and Ian, thank you both for all your work over the years. I've been listening. I've been following you both for a while now, and you're, you've had a, a huge influence on my listening habits. Uh, thank you uh, for Gangs of Youth, Steve, and the Hotel Year, Ian. Oh, yeah. nice. Yes, two pet bands for, for each of us. <laughs> uh, the other day I saw you both engage in a Twitter discussion on Queens of the Stone Age, prompted by uh, Larry Fitzmaurice tweet, and I immediately wanted to hear a full episode of you two talking about Queens of the Stone Age. Down that thread, I saw more and more people saying either Rated R or the self-titled are the best Queens record, but as much as I love those, that seems insane to me when Songs for the Deaf exists. Are we sleeping on Like Clockwork as one of their very best? How do you guys feel mm. about Lullabies to Paralyze and Era Vulgaris? Um, albums I have great fondness for, but recognize aren't their best. What do you think is the legacy of Queens of the Stone Age at this point? So yeah, we're not going to do a full episode on Queens, but we will talk about them briefly yeah. here at the start of our Indie Cassies episode. I don't know how you feel, Ian. I th- With me and Queens of the Stone Age... I feel like the first three records are clearly head and shoulders above the rest. I like like Clockwork. Um, you know, I think Lullabies to Paralyze is a, is a good record. I actually saw a lot of people in that Twitter thread that the listener is referencing say that that was their favorite album, which seems like kind yeah. of a contrarian choice to me. But like, I I do like that record a lot. But yeah, okay. for me, it's Songs for the Deaf number one. Probably the self-titled number two and rated R number three, and then the rest in some order. <laughs> they exist. Um, for me, by the way, no one mentioned Villains, which came out. Like I recently found out this morning that I reviewed this album for Spin <laughs> back in 2017, and I Mark Ronson was producing it, and I don't remember a damn thing about it except there was one song with like a wah wah pedal. Um, Queens of the Stone Age, it's pretty good. It's all right. It, it exists. Um, and I think I was super into Queens of the Stone Age in for a very brief window of time when I was working at Alt Rock Radio 2000, 2002, and I had like something to which I could compare them. Um, when I'm thinking about my favorite Queens of the Stone Age record, it's probably Rated R. I think that's the, the weirdest one, the one where they kind of were in that space where they're really left of center of what like 
was playing on rock radio, you know, like your Foo Fighters or Stained. And when I'm actually listening to Queens of the Stone Age album, I mean, it's clearly songs for the deaf. Like that first half of that album is just so insanely peak after peak. I mean, also, it's a way too long record. Um, And then three years later, I just kind of found myself not really caring about Queens of the Stone Age. Like, Lullabies to Paralyze came out. I may have listened to it once. I can't say I was lacking for time uh, back in those days. Um, but yeah, that and Era Vulgaris, it's just like, yeah, I guess like they exist. By that point, like they had become uh, kind of part of the GQ rock continuum of like, you know, it's very, um, it's very kind of poignant in 2017. I ended up working with Mark Ronson and like the Arctic Monkeys and, all those bands that like, you know, kind of remind me of the movie Baby Driver, uh, where it's like kind of like real rock and roll, like at least in kind of iconography or what have you. But I, their legacy is really, I don't know what their legacy is because they kind of exist in their own realm. Like I can't think, I think a lot of bands want to occupy that same sort of lane. But like if you were to like try to sound like Queens of the Stone Age, you would just be, it would be very clear that you were ripping them off. Um, I think they're a band kind of defined by, you know, the vocals and the guitar tones, but like, as far as I, I just, well, it, it's funny you bring that up because I, I feel like Arctic Monkeys, when they put out AM, which I think w- that record was produced by Josh Ome, I feel like they kind of like took usurped Queens of the Stone Age mojo yeah. on that record. And like, they, they took it off. Like, like, do I want to know is like the most yeah. successful Queens of the Stone Age song ever. Yeah. That's by Arctic but that, Monkeys. that being said, yeah, I mean, I, 2013, my God is the sun from like clockwork. That, that song fucking rips, man. But I don't remember anything. Like they're a band that comes out. It's particularly since like songs for the deaf and just put out like two or three really like there could be a great greatest hits record. Uh, for them, post songs for the deaf, you know, and that's yeah. I mean, I think me. all their records are are are, are solid. Yeah. Um, after uh, songs for the deaf, I thought songs for I, I still think I, I've said this many times, and I I believe it still that songs for the deaf is like the the best hard rock record of the twenty first century. Like I, I just in terms of, and I actually don't think it's too long. I I like the whole thing. I and I like the interstitial skits on it. I know a lot of people find it irritating, but like, what's the saga? Like yeah, that that's funny. I, I like that I, part, but I get into it. I, cause I feel like it's kind of going back to what you were saying about rated R, about how that record was so, so much of a departure from like the radio rock of mm-hmm. the early aughts and songs for the deaf, I think is pretty clearly making fun of rock radio. Yeah. Uh, so I appreciate that aspect of it. There's sort of like a meta quality that like, yeah, we're like the outsider radio rock mm-hmm. band but, and we're making fun of radio rock, but that also was the record. Obviously Dave Grohl yeah. came into the fold. So they were embraced by rock radio, I think finally with that record. And now I feel like they're one of the few, if I can use the word credible bands that get, you know, at least a modicum of airplay uh, on rock radio. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, like if I listen to rock radio, you know, you're going to hear, like, tons of Chili Pepper songs <laughs> from the odds. It's not just California and, where like, that happens, like, because we get nothing but and, sublime in, no, the, that's, in uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers. That's Midwest, too. Oh. It's like Chili Peppers. It's like Disturbs cover of <laughs> Sounds of Silence and, like... You know, Foo Fighters, and maybe you get like a an occasional like no one song. knows sprinkled in there. Um, so that's always good to hear. But yeah, I mean, they're a band that like like if I heard 
today that there was a new Queens of the Stone Age record coming out, like I would be into it. I would check it out and I would expect it to be like a B or B plus album. Like I probably wouldn't necessarily anticipate it being totally great. Mm-hmm. But again, I do feel like they have three great records yeah. and, and I don't think they have any bad records. No. Like I enjoy every album to varying degrees. Well, so, you know, they're a band that I think, um, you know, in terms of like their legacy is, I think they have their niche mm-hmm. and, they're going to continue to have it. You know, Josh had that weird run, I guess that was like a, like a couple years ago. I guess that was like the villains era yeah. where it seemed like he kind of cracked up on tour. I think he like kicked a photographer in the oh, face yeah. or something like yeah. that at one point. It was like pretty, pretty bad. So hopefully uh, whatever he was going through, yeah. uh, I forgot he got all over about That's that. a pretty crappy thing. There's a, there's a, there's an yeah. air of problematicism surrounding that band, particularly because of Nick Oliveri. But, um, yeah, I, you know, it just kind of dawned, like, Queens of the Stone Age, I've kind of just realized they're sort of like Deftones for GQ readers, you know? Like, they're like the rock band that, like, really did their thing in the early 2000s and continue to be Oh, really I'm sure good. plenty of GQ readers like Deftones, though. I don't know. I mean, like, like, I think Queens of the Stone I Age are I don't, for I don't, Coachella. I, don't like Deft- I think they're for, like, a lot of people who, like, go to Coachella and, like, wear expensive boots and so forth, like... I, and I, yeah, I think I, I think there's plenty of that in the Deftones fan base. I mean, I, I, I think you're kidding yourself a little bit. I've been to a like Deftones. I've like been to Deftones. Sharp dressed men. I've been to Deftones festivals, and uh, I stand by my. <laughs> I've been to Deftones festivals and Coachella. I stand by my assessment, and I'm a Deftones fan. So, right, well, I mean, the Queens of the Stone Age shows I've been to, it was not a fashion show huh. by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of guys. Uh, wearing dusters uh, at the shows I've been to. But I don't know. Again, you're in Southern California, so I feel like that just throws everything off (laughs) a little bit. It's not totally a representative. I'm not saying, you know, Minnesota is, but I think it's a little more like everywhere else than Southern California. But (sighs) fine. I could be wrong. You're the real American. You're you're probably. So let's commence the indie casties yes. portion of the episode. I feel like there should be like a, a theme or like a introductory dance number. Maybe like um, there should be like a collaboration between like a younger artist, like Kid Cudi <laughs> and like Dolly Parton should be doing a duet. Kid, at the look, man, of the show. Kid Cudi is like one of the. I st- like I reviewed one of his albums in like 2009 or 2010, and that is one of the few people who were st- his fans are still guaranteed to get at me like every couple of months. Like, what do you think about giving Man on the Moon a four? It's like, how stupid do you feel? So I don't think we're gonna get Kid Cudi Kid- anytime, anytime soon. Well, Kid Cudi has a new album out today. Oh. He's getting totally screwed by the Taylor Swift. Him and Jack, Har- I don't know him like- and Jack Kid- Harlow, man. Let's think about the real victims in all this. Yeah. I don't know if there's like a, a feud between Taylor Swift and Kid Cudi, oh, where she was just like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna kill this guy uh, by dropping." I mean, he was, he is, he album. is a Kanye associate. So if we want to rehash that all over oh, again, oh, there you go, yeah. there you go. We're, we think, are, we I, are through I, the looking glass. Theory. <laughs> I love it. All right. Well, anyway, back to the indie casties. Yes. Our first category. We're gonna get started with a big one right away. We're not gonna be like doing any like two hours of like categories no one cares about. Yes. We're gonna get into the big categories immediately first category is the most indie cast as a genre <laughs> album or artist of 2020 and this came from one of our listeners uh this is a, i'm looking for his name benjamin moffitt thank you benjamin 
He suggested a bunch of categories. Mm. We got a lot of good suggestions from our listeners, by the way, as you know, as you would expect. Um, we weren't able to use all of them, but this was a good one. So yeah, indie cast as a genre. We've joked about this on the show before yeah. about how basically it's like the meeting point of our taste. It's like emo on one side, maybe like a rootsier, jammier thing on the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, and where that meets in the middle. And it seemed like the obvious choice for me was Young Jesus, Welcome to Conceptual Beach. Also because I think we're we're like one of the only two people who like talked about this record at all this year yeah. which was is really wrong because it is it didn't make either one of our top fives it made it was my number i think 12 it was record it was year. top 10 for me uh, i think i might have like um, pushed it a little bit lower because we had an episode where we talked about it and i wanted to talk about other records but it's definitely top 10 for me yeah and again I, this is a, a a band that um i think on one hand i mean they started out in the emo scene oh yeah and i think that they have to me and I wrote about this. They they remind me of like a band like Modest Mouse mm-hmm. that kind of has like a indie rock bed you know like a bedrock indie thing going on, but it's it's more expansive, and they can stretch out and get a little like crazier and weirder than maybe just like a straightforward indie rock band. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, this is a great record. And I it the, this is a band too that like I I'm a little you know we talk about bands that get slept on. This band in particular, I, I feel like, ought to be written about more mm. because I do feel like they do break the mold in a lot of ways of like what an indie rock band could be. And I just feel like they're more adventurous than a lot of bands uh-huh. that I hear that are young coming out. Like You can't really classify them as any one particular thing. And maybe that's why they slip through the cracks yeah. a little bit because they're, they, don't, they don't really fit in with like a scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they, they're a band... They're, they're and also before we get any further, like indie casty as a genre, I know how like how that can sound, but like what we what the reason I think we have this category is because we saw this phenomenon. Like readers would point this out, where bands that we talked about on this show, when you look at their Spotify fans, also like it would be like bands that have absolutely nothing at all to do with each other sonically, but it would be like Stay Inside and Dogleg, but also David Nance and like kind of the same grouping. So. Um, it, it was really cool to kind of see that. Um, but yeah, with young Jesus, that's pretty much like the, the band that embodies like what we talk about in the sense that like, yeah, they started out in an emo sort of, um, Midwest emo, uh, sort of mold, like worshiping bright eyes and so forth. And then they kind of move more towards like astral jazz and like real jam band stuff. I mean, their songs are like six minutes or better, like regularly on albums and, more i think more more to the point like this this is a band that kind of like steve said uh covers so much ground like they could be liked by so many people but that also allows them to slip through the cracks a bit because you know they don't really have that like core scene or like i mean they they're from LA uh but they operate on in their own sort of world they don't have like associated bands with them like despite being on Saddle Creek and i think in my like Obviously, they're number one, but like a close number two is another band that embodies those sort of characteristics, which is Empty Country. Uh, this is Joe D'Agostino's uh, post Symbols Eat Guitars band. Um, Symbols Eat Guitars, I, I kind of respect the fact that they, in 2014, after Lose uh, came out, they started to shift a little more towards emo. Like, I think they saw that there might be an audience there for them, and they toured with Say Anything and Modern Baseball. Um, that 
didn't obviously work as far as like expand exploding their fan base. They're like a, a, another like sort of like Young Jesus. I think bands that we like tend to have kind of hard luck stories where they're just like really underappreciated. Like they're just kind of un- yeah. You want to you you cheer for underdogs. Yeah. Like you want you know, you you find the bands that and we talked about this last mm-hmm. week that you know there's definitely artists that um always end up on top 10 lists that they always end up you know among the most critically acclaimed records of the year and i think sometimes again like you don't want to back away from those albums if they happen to be great but at the same time if you're a critic you do like to support the um the bands that aren't maybe a little underloved out there and And, empty country country, is so underloved like the real shame about this is that um this was supposed to be the album where Joe gets like it, it separates himself from the hard luck narrative around Symbol Z guitars. Like, and then what happens? He announces a tour with uh, Purple Mountains the day David Berman dies, and then he's on Tiny Engines and that label full. So he's got to release it on his own. Then he puts it out on a smaller uh, Philadelphia label, Get Better Records, and then the pandemic happens. And so it, it, it it's an album that like kind of endured more hardship than anything previously. And they were always a hard luck band. And with this album in particular, this album, man, it's like the songwriting is so like, there are bands where I like the songs, but it's rare for me to find like a songwriter who I'll follow whatever project they do. And his songwriting is just, I I just don't understand like how it doesn't, you know, it, it that it doesn't translate to a much larger audience because it is like very personal, but also surreal in a way similar to like say Phoebe Bridgers. But I also think that he's just not somebody who's ever really been able to uh, create a na- like a narrative beyond like how come these ten writers are the only people who like Symbol Z guitars. You know, it. Well, you know, and I, I, I will say too, like a silver lining, I think, with Empty Country is that. Um, I do feel like people were aware of his past and mm-hmm. and some of the hard luck things he's had, and I I think that there was like at least a mini groundswell among fans of uh, this kind of music to buy that record, like when it came out on Bandcamp. I feel like a lot of people were talking about that, and I, and yeah, I know even Joe even talked about that. Like he felt like he got a good amount of support, not as much as he deserved. Yeah. Um, but I mean, like I know Billboard wrote about that record. Huh. I mean, it, it got like a decent amount of press. I think you know. More than like Young Jesus did, certainly. Yeah. So you know, hopefully that continues. Um, I think it's a really good project it's... for him, and like to see that keep getting momentum. Um, but the my my my, my concern category. my concern with him is that like he's just so I I just hope that he continues making music because he always says in every interview that like if I if this one doesn't break I might I'm gonna have to quit music. So I just hope he keeps going yeah. in some form or fashion. You know. Maybe that's why I feel like well, Joe, more li- personally invested in the success of this one. Well, Joe, if you're listening, keep please it make up, another man. Empty <laughs> we'll talk about that on IndieCast. Moving on to our next category, this is a this is suggested by a, another listener, uh, Mikey Etc. is his username. I had his real name, and I don't have it anymore. So we'll just call you Mikey, etc. Et yes, uh, he said. Stephen's favorite Ian Core Ian Cohen core <laughs> album, and Ian's favorite Stephen Hyden core album. So this is kind of playing off the first category a little bit. Yeah. If you listen to the show, you know that Ian and I both have our lanes uh, that sometimes intersect, but often do not. <laughs> so, and I think we all know what we're talking about when we say Ian Cohen core, yeah. 
Stephen Heidencore. Uh, for me, I'll say, uh, and I'm, I, I quite like this year, was called I'll Figure This Out by a band called uh, Barely Civil, mm. uh, which is uh, an album I saw you talk about here and there. Um, this might be cheating a little bit because Barely Civil is from Wisconsin, <laughs> which kind of makes them in my lane, you know, because I am a booster of the upper Midwest. Um, but this record I, I, I like quite a bit. And, and I'll say that, like, if you're a person who listens to the show and you hear Ian talking about emo records and you're not sure, like, well, I don't listen to emo all that much. I'm not sure where to dive in. I would suggest this record as being an example of, like, a really melodic, pretty, kind of like a Jimmy Eat World type emo rock thing, which is what I tend to be more amenable to. The more melodic, I guess, like... Not so much screamy, but like more, you know, I guess Jimmy Eat World, Bleed American type era w- stuff. Very and wistful. That's what I really respond to on this record. Yeah. Wistful. Yeah. Wistful, sad, but also like a good amount of like crunchy guitars and, you know, you get the riffs and the sadness at the same time. A little bit like heavier than something like Death Cab for Cutie, which, as I've said on a previous episode, is a band I think is fine, but I haven't really responded to all that much. Mm-hmm. But I do like Jimmy Eat World quite a bit. And uh, yeah, this record kind of scratches that itch for me. So Ian, good job talking up Barely Civil. I do like this record quite a bit. Yeah, we're out here making a difference. Great great record. It's very, uh, I, I imagine it'll hit very differently now that it's like actually winter uh, in most parts of the country. It was a very autumnal sounding uh emo record in the more of the vein like you know american football or the quieter jimmy Eat world songs um and yeah i'm excited to hear what they do in the future i don't think this band's uh masterpiece has come yet uh but this one's certainly very yeah, good th- like there's definitely room this for is growth. like their second album yes, right it is. it's this a is, massive yeah. massive i remember growth. liking their first album yeah too. massive improvement over yeah. the first one which is also quite good but this is where they're starting to come into their own so for well and and I think they're from Eau Claire area. They're from all too. they they are from I, I interviewed them for Stereo Gum and like there are four members of the band and three of them went to different University of Wisconsin satellite campuses. I think it was like Oh, which ones? Uh, I think Oshkosh, Whitewater, and nice. Eau Claire, maybe. Like de- definitely not Madison. like Madison like uh, it was none of them went to Madison, but they're yeah, they're We got a blue gold in the band. Yeah. See, I didn't know that there was a blue gold in the band. This <laughs> makes me like them even more. Yeah. And uh UW Oshkosh, that's definitely uh in my backyard from where i grew up so all right barely civil i love you even more yeah but problem keep wave the flag for the for the uw satellite schools <laughs> and one of them is wearing a university of minnesota sweater in the press picture so that's even oh, bonus right say love it love all it. all right so so what album that, that i like do you also like so yeah i mean in the way like steven said if it's if it if it if it, if it leans towards like pure emo then it's probably ian cohen core like steve's more on like kind of the folk chugal side of things and um uh this one Beards. this one is kind of cheating as well because this is in the uh justin vernon uh cinematic universe uh this is an album that came out in january uh from a band a folk super group called bonnie light horseman um it's an an, yes. an, an Anais Mitchell, uh, Josh Kaufman, who's worked with His Golden Messenger in the National, and Eric Johnson from the Fruit Bats, not the Eric Johnson who I think was in like Guitar World, who did White Cliffs of Dover or whatever. But, um, you know, this band came together at the Eau Claire Festival in 2018. Uh, so that alone puts them in the, uh, you know, the Stephen Hyden realm. But 
yeah i mean but uh yeah this record is it, it it's something i would like typically ignore it's like being you know i think it's nominated for best uh contemporary folk grammy and uh the songs themselves are kind of like public domain they're they're based on like historical folk songs but um for whatever it, it came out in January, like one of the underrated parts about putting an album out in January, people are like, "Oh, people are gonna forget you by the year end." It's also it. But now, mind you, this was January two thousand twenty, before the pandemic, where you know the year was looking normal. But um, it's a time where I am more likely to give albums that I otherwise wouldn't listen to a chance because there's just basically nothing else out. And I was just really taken aback by how. Uh, the similarities this had between albums I already like, you know, like alternately tuned guitars, harmonies. Um, it's just a really like beautiful record, but not in like a, in a way that's like um, kind of boneless for lack of a better term. Like I think the fact that it draws from like traditional folk gives it a bit more heft or just like a bit more bloodiness than the sort of thing I might overhear on NPR and just kind of ignore. Um, it's not a record I revisit a lot, but like it is one that I do when I just kind of want to reset, you know, just to, just to kind of reboot the day or whatever, or when I'm like driving to work in the morning and I don't want to be like, you know, agitated, um, where I just want to listen to something like really pretty, but like still like very crafty. It's like, um, it's, it's something it oddly enough in the same way that like barely civil reminds me of something I'd listened to in college. Like this is something I'd also listen to in college because like I, I, I tried really hard to get into like traditional folk and like country living in the South at that time, you know, just so I'd have like something to talk about with like, you know, my doormates or whatever. So, uh, yeah, the duality. Yeah. This is, and, and this is a good winter record yes, too. Very much like so. this record, like, uh, really suits the, the time of the year that we're in. Yeah. This record, uh, it made my mid year list for 2020. It didn't make my year end, but it would have been like right outside of it. it would I did a top 20. It would have made probably my top 30 or 35. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, definitely Bonnie light horseman. It's a great record. Yes. So, uh, okay. So we're moving on to our next category here and this is what I'm pretty excited to talk about. <laughs> Uh, which, because it's most annoying album cycle, um, and we've already talked about annoying album cycles in this episode. I feel like this is something that we probably both <laughs> I feel a lot of affinity for in terms of complaining about. It's a very music critic thing to complain about. Yeah. Um, and I, I had two choices here, and uh, I'll, I'll go through them quickly. I think my number one choice would be the car seat headrest. Hmm album psycho for making a door less open uh because i feel like that is actually like a pretty good record overall like i think it's a significant step down from you know like teens of denial which i thought was like one of the best records Mm -hmm. of the 2010s this is i don't think even one of the best albums of of 2020 but i think it's like a pretty good album but um you had the whole thing with him like wearing a mask in interviews, oh yeah, which was really kind of weird. Uh, you had like three slightly different versions of the same album. Like when I reviewed the album, I was sent three different versions, oh, and I was like, yeah. "What is God. like the real version? Like what what should I be reviewing?" And, and they're like, "They're not dramatically different, but it was like sometimes like the track order was different, or there were like somewhat different versions of like." of the same song where like the mix would be like a little bit different or be like a little bit longer on one of the other albums. And then like the lead single 
Hollywood is, I think, hands down, like, one of the worst car seat headrest songs uh, ever. Like, super irritating song. And it just set a bad tone for that record, which, again, I think there's some, like, pretty strong mm-hmm. songs on there that I, that, I, that I quite like. But it's like I had to get over, I feel like, so much garbage <laughs> to get to the good stuff that... You know, it just seemed like it took a lot of work. It, it, it felt a lot like everything now to me. Like uh, just like how that album launch felt like they were throwing too many ideas against the wall, too much shtick. Like the mask thing, especially, you know, that was conceived before the pandemic, obviously. But then to be wearing a mask during the pandemic, it just seemed like, oh, you're commenting on celebrity. and uh, But now everyone's wearing a mask. Yeah. Like it just didn't land. My second choice, uh, and this will not surprise you, that I'm going to take another shot at this band, but the 1975. The 1975, their album cycle for Notes on a Conditional Form. This is the album cycle that just kind of talked me out of being a fan of this band. Like, I, I've talked about this. I like their previous records. I, I like it when you sleep, I think, in particular, is a really strong record, but like... I think my problem with this album cycle is that I just liked the 1975 more when they were critically disreputable. <laughs> they were more fun to to get into in the same way that I think I'm drawn to Greta Van Fleet now. Yeah. Like, they're this dumb rock band that everyone takes a shit on, which kind of makes me like them. Mm-hmm. The 1975 kind of had that, not to the same degree as Greta Van Fleet, but like they, you know, they were a band that people made fun of for a while. And then they became like just think peace fodder for people because of love it if we made it you know that really was the turning point for them and just him talking about how you know doing interviews where he's like we're fucking up the mainstream discourse and you know if you're a band that isn't trying to be the biggest band in the world it's not aspirational it's a hobby it's just like ah oh, just shut up man. <laughs> you just had so many obnoxious quotes to me and i know and look we don't need to rehash this too much I know, like, we both love Billy Corgan. We both love, I love the Gallagher brothers, obviously. I'm not necessarily against delusional, egotistical rock stars, but I don't know. My patience just wore thin with them, uh, you know, during that whole thing. So, uh, yeah, so definitely, but definitely Car Seat Headrest number one, I think, for worst album cycle. And then 1975 would be the runner up for me. What are your picks for? most annoying album cycle yeah the thing about the 1975 is that they're always on an album cycle so i can't really separate one for the other <laughs> um so that's true that was and that cycle went on forever yeah too. it was i mean that very was like long. almost was it a year about yeah, it was almost a year yeah I mean, tame and paula had the same yeah thing same too like where there's just went on forever yeah i like that record but the singles um, were very underwhelming so i thought about tame and paula as a candidate and i thought what I had to do to make sure that this, um, you know, the pause went agitated bit is to separate the album cycle from like the album discourse. Cause I think those are two very different things. Um, I had to con- like, I can't think of too many like press cycles that really reminded me of like, say everything now where you just kind of recoil that everything the band did. Um, I think, you know, the pandemic really tamped down, uh, bands or artists, uh, tendencies to do really extensive, kind of cheeky promos Um, but the one that so you know they're they're exhausting discourses but as as far as the ones that the um, the album cycles that really kind of wore me down um, uh, they're kind of two sides of the same coin 
uh, for the Haley Williams and the Bright Eyes uh, album releases. Now, I wasn't nothing about like the singles was, you know, annoying. I mean, like I, I'm, I'm not sure about the whole like release, like five songs, like every four months sort of thing. I appreciate they're doing something experimental with it. But what, you know, particularly with Bright Eyes um, and to a lesser extent, the Haley Williams album cycle was that just the redundancy of like reading 25 to like 30 of the same damn profiles every time and having it be written by someone who was like clearly like a huge fan at like 15 or 20. Now, granted, I did one for Bright Eyes. So, you know, guilt, like I contributed to that discourse, but I remember thinking like I got really, I got in really early on that Bright Eyes, uh, you know, beat like back in like say February. And then, you know, like it seemed like every week, like a new profile of Connor Oberst with the same talking points and none of them really like challenged him at all. And like, I had to think like to the last, like, man, how is mine going to be any different? And so to me, like those understandably like were the were the realm of like kind of fanfic or like just all like kind of fawning in a way. Like I get it, but in a, it seemed like a, a maybe I'm just projecting like a little cynical um, in trying to like insulate either of these artists from like having to be I don't know criticized or in any way. So. Um, I mean, it's small potatoes compared to something like Car Seat Headrest and like 1975. But to me, those were a little, it was a little bit kind of an insidious form of like when you get like uh, celebrities, celebrities interviewing other celebrities in publications. Um, And so I, I, maybe I'm just like projecting here. Maybe I'm just mad because I had to like, I was like the last of 50 bright eyes profiles, but um. I think that those are artists in particular, <laughs> I think those artists in particular, like I, I was sort of turned off by just the tone and the redundancy of how, just how extensively they were profiled. But it, like there was a lot of breadth, but not a lot of depth I find in, in those album cycles. Can I just say that like, I have never interviewed Connor Oberst and I feel like I'm the last music journalist who likes Connor Oberst's yeah. music who's never interviewed him. Like I don't know how that hasn't happened. Because uh-huh. because that thing you're talking about, like I noticed that too. Like there were like multiple Connor Oberst profiles every week, and I'm like, how have I not interviewed this guy yet? I mean, and now I feel like I I shouldn't interview him. This should be just like that thing like where like I'm the one guy who's never seen Star Wars. You know, <laughs> like I'm gonna be the one guy who's never interviewed Connor Oberst. Um that'd be amazing. So on to our next category here. And uh, this is gonna be our last credit category of this episode. I'm gonna call an audible here because we're running a little long. So we'll we were gonna do five categories this episode. We'll we'll just do six next week and uh try not to spend as much time talking about Taylor Swift. Although I know it'll be hard to keep you from talking about Evermore next week. I know you'll be excited to get into it. Um, let's talk about the most memory hold album of 2020. This is like another category that is always very close to my heart. The albums that like you look back on the year and you actually forgot that they came out. <laughs> and uh, my choice is uh, the Green Day album, Father of All Motherfuckers. Huh. Uh, which came out, I believe, in February, they, right before the pandemic. They get true. <laughs> and uh, I remember that this album was 
sort of controversial online because it, there was that billboard that showed up in a bunch of places where it said something like, like no DJs, no Swiss producers. You yeah. know, it was very <laughs> no much auto-tune, like, no Swedish like, producers, no auto tune. Yeah. It was a very dudes rock type, um, uh, ad campaign. And, and like the, the title of the record obviously is very sort of like, you know, we're, we're you know, we're putting our, we're putting our junk on the table type move, you know, like we're showing off here, like how, how tough we are, which I don't really like that for Green Day. Like I, I don't like when they try to be like the angry punk band. I don't think that really works for them. I always thought that they were like a pop band that had like heavy guitars, yeah. and like and, and and I say that as a compliment. Like they write really good songs that are melodic and and catchy. They're not like this like badass like scary punk band. Like, them trying to act that way, especially now that like what. Are they in their fifties now? By now, yeah, or got, I would least... say gotta be. Like if if I, I would think that they were in their fifties by now. They gotta be. It just seems like a little desperate, you know. Especially like you see Billy Joe Armstrong now, and his face is like so smooth, <laughs> and he has like his hair is very very dark. <laughs> I don't know. It just he looks very waxy right now. He's actually forty eight um, years. Yeah. He's forty eight years old. He's forty eight. Okay, so he's push. He's he's getting close to fifty. Um, wow. So then he was. Really young when 20, when Dookie hit twenty two or tw- like twenty one twenty one or twenty two yeah ugh um, <laughs> yeah and he's he's been around forever um, so yeah that's a record and I can't remember any of the songs on it I remember that Billboard that's all I remember about that record and you know Green Day obviously they're not a band at their creative peak and their last bunch of albums have been pretty forgettable but it's still Green Day I still feel like you ought to remember that they put out a record. But I don't remember that album at all. Like, do you remember? Like, do, do you remember that album I, being any good? Or I, I, I never li- is like it bad. Uh, Green Day is like a band that I'm surprisingly not that into. Um, like, a- like anyone of my age group um, who talks about the things I talk about, I totally own Dookie. I learned how to play all those songs on guitar. But like, they never really spoke to me the way that like other bands from that era did. And like, even like. American idiot like I that just kind of passed me by but you know the fact that like we remember the billboard um kind of defy like kind of defies the memory hold aspect like I can't remember the album itself but I remember like Green Day did something and you know that that's that to me is like more than a lot of bands can say but the thing about like Green Day is that I get the feeling that maybe people who still like Green Day haven't memory hold that album I think they've they're like in a space where they're kind of like a huge cult band in that like nothing they do right now would probably expand their fan base. But, um, you know, perhaps that there's like a very vibrant green day community. That's, um, you know, that, that is ranking father of all motherfuckers, like right up there with like say Nimrod or whatever. That's not, that's not happening. I don't, uh, you're right. And that a lot of people love them, but like, I don't think green day fans, we're really yeah. excited about that album. I, I think they're probably they probably still have like Insomniac in their car, yeah. you know, <laughs> or they have uh, yeah, like yeah, like Nimrod or something. I would just think that um, like a Green Day album is like an any year would probably be memory hold at least by like our standards. But yeah, this one in particular yeah, is like wow, like that was February. Like you could have, I could have sworn that happened in like 2017, you know? <laughs> right, right. Well, what, what are your memory holes? Oh gosh. So this one, um, I, I, I thought about like, should it be something from pre-pandemic or I, or should it be something like during the pandemic? Because like there, 
there are albums that came out that like should be big, but um, just people have kind of completely almost like for like even big, big, big artists that just seem to have like no real impact that they should for a pop act. And our guy, Larry Fitzmaurice brought this up yesterday. I mean, like there was a, you know, there was a Lady Gaga album out this year. There was a Drake album. I mean, technically speaking, a Drake album out this year. It was more of a kind of a collection of like B-sides or whatever. Uh, there was an Ariana Grande album that came out a little while ago that doesn't seem to have like it, it. You know, it's pretty bad. Like when you're a pop artist that puts out an album and like you know the only year end list you make is like Billboard's like critic list. I mean, like that that is a signal that you've kind of put out a memory hold pop album, but. The w- I feel like Ariana Grande was all over my Twitter feed for like two yeah, weeks. But like, just be people yeah, but like, yeah, this is the this is the horny album we need in 2020. <laughs> I feel like I read that like a hundred times. Yeah, but I think compared to her previous albums, like the ta- the the tale, like after the initial impact. It well, can- you well, you, I have to tell, I have to say, like in our outline, you put Childish Gambino. Yes. In this category, oh, yeah. and like, oh, I, I have to say that, like, that I legitimately forgot. Yeah, that, that there was a childish Gambino yes. record. So, oh, uh, uh, yeah. So, but the the one album that I swore, like, I could not remember this coming out. Um, and I'm not trying to rehash old beefs, um, <laughs> because along with Kid Cudi, I still get grief for my review of Childish Gambino's Camp. I would have written it far differently now. It's still terrible, but. Childish Gambino in 2018 put out This Is America, a, a song that uh, a more astute critic than myself called a pop-up shop for uh, like, you know, for Twitter discourse. I think the song itself wasn't right. particularly good. The video was like very um, compelling. But what this, what that song did, it, I think it topped quite a few year-end lists in 2018. Um, it really put forth this idea that like, he is fully uh, like Donald Glover is like fully this like cultural force who, you know, is not just um, strong arming people through to his popularity or the fact that he's in movies or Atlanta. But like this is like one of our more like this is one of our most important artists. And he putting out that song and then uh, headlining Coachella in 2019 and um, everything was leading up to. I don't know, his Stankonia, his there's a riot going on, just something that really cements him as one of the foremost artists of our time. And like he put out an album in March. Like, do you remember what the title of it is? Like it just Yeah, I I honestly don't remember anything about this album. Yeah. And like I had to think like when you again, like when you put in the outline, I was like, wow, that's a good <laughs> choice for memory hold album because I literally could not remember that. Yeah, what, what was it called? I it, it had a date on it, and I'm like I'm not trying to be flip about this, but like it, it was like three fifteen twenty or something along those lines. Um, it, I mean, like, was it a full fledged record? Th- yeah, three fifteen twenty. It was a full fledged record. Um, it had like just a white cover. Um, and I mean, it came out on well, a ra- yeah, well, it, it came out on a major label. Um. Well, okay. I'm reading the Wikipedia page here just to refresh. <laughs> like, that's my how you know this one it, really belongs. Well, no, it was posted on his website, DonaldGloverPresents.com, and then it was taken down 12 hours later. Oh. So I wonder, like, if it does that count as coming out? Because I don't know if it was like I, I think it exists. I mean, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it's floating out there. I mean, it was out for 12 hours, so I'm sure like tens of thousands of people downloaded it in that time. But it seems like. Maybe he had second thoughts and just like pulled it. Um, yeah, or if it was it's like a, a stunt. 
that uh, that you know that he's just going to do that. I mean, it got some pretty good reviews. It got a six point oh from Pitchfork. Mm. Um, Consequence of Sound gave it a B plus. <laughs> so yeah, there's different opinions on it. Apparently, yeah. um, but the fact that like someone this it, it, this uh, at this level, like this was supposed to be like the like the zenith of his art, and you know maybe that like maybe it, it, this is like a good thing for like the long term where he you know where the next album is like the one he's like really on board with or whatever or just maybe it's like in tune with his mistrust of like you know discourse like his interviews are like usually really uh combative um and maybe this is uh indicative of that but it's well he released it like right at the shutdown i mean that was right when things were getting shut down so it was like terrible timing Mm -hmm. too I have to admit I've not heard that record, so I can't really comment on whether it's good or bad. Um, it's interesting that thing you were talking about with "This Is America." I feel like you know how that was. I think the the chalky choice <laughs> for like song of the year in 2019. Like you know, if you were a major publication, that was the song I think a lot of people picked because it seemed to like say something about the state of the world, or it was a very zeitgeisty type song. Yeah. And I mean, is it fair to say that that's what WAP was in 2020? I feel like this is America as a song that <laughs> I agree with you. I think it's a song. It's okay. It has a very memorable music video. I think the music video is like kind of brilliant. And I feel like in 2020, WAP was that where I don't know. Is that a great song? I don't really know. If, I don't really think so. But it, the video is very memorable and it was very zeitgeisty in the moment. Yeah. And. It's, a, it's like one of those songs that you put at the top of your list because it's like, well, what other song seems significant enough to go in that slot? Yeah. You know, is it really the best song or is it the most sort of significant song? Yeah. Um, so I, I kind of see parallels with those two tracks mm-hmm. top yeah, in the list. Except like Megan Thee Stallion's album, like people like you, you hear that one like that. That actually exists. And we know it exists. To... Well, I'm not saying it was memorable. No, I'm just saying like no, I'm not saying yeah, it was I do. I do I'm understand the com- like those two songs. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not. I understand the comparison, and also like you know, it's similar with like "Love It" if we made it, or like you know, the Lana Del Rey song from 2019, where it's like, okay, this is like a significant signpost about like what we you know dealt with this year and also the song is called this is america it's like you can't really if you want to like talk about a song that like projects its own significance about like what it's about then i think there was i don't know i thought there was like maybe a little something cynical about that where it is you know he kind of understands how like i think he has a good understanding of how like particularly like white critics think about his work and so um but yeah i mean maybe maybe his you know maybe his stankonia maybe his uh to pimp a butterfly awaits but yeah this is an album that like we're talking about like a headliner for coachella and uh someone who has like a very very ardent uh fan base who and this it's just kind of hard to remember like this is re- like this got sucked right into the memory hole of like late march when like we were still trying to figure this whole thing out. And, you know, if anyone you'd think be able to like come out, come through that uh, with, you know, a significant pop album, it would be him. But yeah, that, I think that one is really something that just got, I got sucked into the, the uh, rupture in our daily life that occurred in March, in late March. So we're going to put a pause on Cassie for now, but please check back with us next week. We'll be back with part two of our IndieCast award show.
We've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I recommend something that we're into this week. Uh, Ian, why don't you go first? All right, so <laughs> this I think this part of the show is really going to show the uh, Ian-Steve dichotomy. Um, if you want to talk about, like, true emo, like, I mean, like, we're talking, like, playing in a basement to, like, 12 people in New Jersey, breaking up after your first album, uh, not getting covered on any kind of, like, major publications. Uh, we got to talk about uh, a New Jersey band called Ogbert the Nerd. Um this album comes out uh, tomorrow or Friday, uh, December 11th. Also, clearly a band that doesn't care about getting on year end list. But um, they are a band that's named after a Tracy Jordan bit on uh, 30 Rock. Um, and their new album is called um, I Don't Hate You. And th- 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 this is just like an album that's like really fun to hear particularly after we've spent so much time trying to think about like the heaviness of 2020 and like year end lists and um, you know, significance and narratives like these guys that, you know, they, they're a band that reminds me a little bit of like say snowing or whatever from, I guess like pure emo revival where like they clearly love making emo music, but they kind of hate it too. And so there's this sort of meta self-destructive quality to it where, um, it's just like they they don't take themselves too seriously and they kind of play up a lot of emo tropes but it's also super catchy as well um if you like um basically i think like 2016 dog leg or like uh 2009 2010ish joyce manor like before they got polished or you know just be- like back when they were just like a punk band that didn't give a shit about anything other than like pleasing their 12 friends on twitter Ogbert the nerd really does that and like will it show up on my 2021 year end list I don't know but uh for people who are like deep into emo twitter like this is like this is this is the album for you also if you're the type of person who likes to say hey so what are you into lately Ogbert the nerd I think this one I I think you definitely owe this at least a listen it's a little good it's it's good counter programming to say like Kid Cudi Jack Harlow Taylor Swift if you really want to be like pissy about like people paying too much attention to, you know, uh, popular stuff, this th- this one, you you'll it, it, get, it definitely has the Ian True emo seal of approval. Yeah, I mean they're making it hard with that band name. <laughs> I have to say, but I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a shot. I'm gonna give it a shot this weekend. Uh, I'm coming for you, Ogbert the nerd. Um, I'm gonna go to an old school pick uh, for my recommendation. I uh, checked out. One of the uh, Massive Nights live streams concerts that the Hold Steady played last weekend, and I really liked it. Why'd you laugh? I'm laughing because like at, like when we talk about the favorite Ian Cohen core and the favorite Stephen Hine core, we are like a like a very very small emo band and the Hold Steady. Like we are like really playing our roles here. Well, the whole, well, yeah, like the Hold Steady is like Led Zeppelin. I mean, come on, like this is not like the biggest band in the world by any stretch of the imagination, but they are a band that I loved. I've loved for a really long time. They were definitely like one of my favorite bands of the aughts. I have to say that like I kind of fell out of step with them a little bit in the 2010s. But uh, watching that live stream, it really just reminded me again of like how much I like this band. And uh, it was a really great show. I've actually been digging more into like uh, their last couple albums. I think Thrashing Through the Passion, which came out in 2019. Huh. I remember when that came out, really enjoying it. Uh, I think that was perceived to be sort of a comeback from uh, the previous two records, Heaven 
is uh, Wherever and uh, Teeth Dreams, which I think are actually both like pretty like solid records, but like certainly not as good as the four records that came before it. Uh, Hold Steady just announced a new album called Open Door Policy that's going to be coming out in February. Uh, and I got a promo of that and I'll abstain from talking about that for now, but I think that's something if you are a Hold Steady fan, maybe <laughs> if you haven't checked out their last couple records, you might want to put that on your radar. Uh, I think it will be worth looking forward to and I'll leave it at that. Um, but yeah, it's always fun for me, you know, maybe you have a band that you really love but you haven't listened to for a long time and then you have that experience like where you can like get back into them and really kind of dig back into their uh, their back catalog and hear them with fresh ears. And I think that's true for me with the Hold Steady. You know, I think this was a band that like I maybe over listened to a bit in uh, in the aughts and maybe got a little bit tired of for a while and now I'm just totally back in to listening to them. So if you're a fan of them, I recommend reinvestigating their catalog. If, if you're younger, maybe you weren't around when records like Boys and Girls in America came out, I would suggest investigating those records. There's a lot there to check out. Um, before we sign off today, I just want to say that if you are a fan of our show, I would encourage you to leave us a review on iTunes or wherever it is that you get your pods. The more reviews that we get, that helps our show. It, it I think, helps with the algorithms for our show. It gives us a little bit better placement on platforms and helps build our audience. So if you don't mind saying something nice about us or, or just leaving us a good rating, that would be very much appreciated. Uh, for now, though, we will be signing off on this episode of IndieCast. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with more news and reviews and IndieCasties next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. Mm-hmm.